0: Hello, welcome to Season 2 of the Wildlife Heroes podcast from the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife. I'm Gretchen Miller and in this series we're looking at one animal at a time, the role of wildlife rehabilitation in conservation. There are over 15,000 wildlife volunteers around the country and their work is critical in caring for wildlife that are increasingly impacted upon by human development and the climate crisis. But caring is incredibly labour-intensive. Animal by animal, carers rescue, repair, rehabilitate, wait patiently while the animal recuperates and then they hope to restore animals to their habitat So why does this painstaking work matter? In this series, we talk to carers and conservation researchers about how their work intersects. And this episode is all about the critical role of data in storytelling. Now, data's long been gathered on carers' work, but it's only in recent years in New South Wales that much more detailed information has been gathered and it reflects what it is carers do. So both rehabilitators and policy makers better understand that role. And that data gathered by the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service has recently been analysed and what it reveals. Just a teaser. Over the past six years, there's been 84,000 rescues a year in New South Wales of nearly 700 different species. To discuss, three guests from the Biodiversity and Wildlife team who have done the painstaking work of analysing that data and they're very excited by what they've found. With us is Vanessa Wilson, project officer, Ron Herring, a senior project officer, and Peter Stathis, the manager. And we begin by thinking about what surprised them as they dive down deep into the analysis.
1: Well, I think what surprised us most is the true value of the data. So once we started to polish that nugget of gold, we really began to see some incredibly valuable information that no-one really understood or expected, in particular the sector itself. We had no idea of the scale, the enormity, the detail that we could get from the data set.
0: What about you, Ron?
2: I was impressed by the diversity of species. You always think that this sector just deals with a few common species, but actually they rescue more than 600 different species, and that's incredible.
0: Tell me about the rainbow lorikeets.
2: Well, they're the most common species rescued by the volunteers in New South Wales. You know, I I was expecting birds to be the most common, but not necessarily rainbow lorikeets. Well, there's six and a half thousand records a year, and it's 8% of all the species that are rescued. So that's quite high.
0: So the thing is, carers have been sending in data for decades, right? What's the nature of those early statistics and what they were able
2: to tell you? Well, 20 years ago, the volunteers were providing us essentially with rescue data and release data, so the animals that came in every year and the animals that were released. So we compiled that, but we didn't do anything with it. We didn't really know the volume of species or the location, but we added up all the records. And over the last 20 years, there's been 1.4 million rescues. So that's a huge number of rescues undertaken by just volunteers. We didn't get information on individual species too much, only maybe three or four species. We didn't know where they were rescued. We didn't know why they were rescued.
0: So all of that changed in the past decade. Can you tell us about when that change happened and what you then asked for?
1: Sure. It started about four or five years ago when we undertook a root and branch review of wildlife rehabilitation in New South Wales. Really want to understand what the sector doing, what its challenges were, who its participants were, what they needed. We really were taking an objective view of what is the value of this sector and what we found was amazing. We found that it's sort a of really high value sector, doing incredible things for the community and in that process we began to realise we needed an evidence base to underpin our strategic endeavours. Now the evidence is provided in the annual reporting that these people do. So as part of their licensing from us, they need to report annual records to us.
0: When did you change the nature of those annual records and start to request more detail?
1: When we started to realise the value of the data, that's when we started to really get into quality assuring the data, making sure there was a standardised approach. And the reason we wanted to do this is because we understood that we needed to tell a story We have a narrative about what this sector does and why it's important. We have a strategic objective to increase the understanding, respect and support for the sector. And to do that, particularly in government, you need an evidence base, and that evidence base needs to be rock solid, which is what we've set out about doing.
0: So, Ron, in 2010, that process changed and you were part of the team that led the charge. And I want to make the point here, too, that no other state compiles this data. But, of course, the data in some way is going to reflect the larger picture of why carers matter. Anyway, tell us about when that change happened and what you were doing then and and what you asked for.
2: So prior to 2010, we just compiled essentially rescue data. We were developing our codes of practice at that time, which were standards for the sector, and we were looking at the data that was coming in and we could see it was fairly high-volume information, but we weren't sure it was really quality assured. So we discussed it with the sector themselves. So we were working with them to coordinate it into something that had greater value and greater importance, and that was to collect information on individual species... And like I said, to know where they were coming from, to know what was bringing them into care and to know what condition they were in so we could actually build reports that were more interesting, more complex and something that could be of value for other people for future research.
0: Vanessa, I'd like to bring you in here. Now, you're working at the coalface in all of this. You're a zoologist, but you love to solve tricky problems. What did you do when this work came to you and and how
3: tricky was it? Yeah, my role in the unit is largely focused on data. So when Ron gave me all the, the wildlife rehab data, and I think many years ago he gave it to me in a different format and we tried to clean it up a bit because obviously we have multiple wildlife rehabilitation groups that are licensed to do that in New South Wales and they all like to collect their data in slightly different ways, and so to bring all of that together, we often have to wrangle it into one place uh, where it can all be meaningful and start to be analysed. And it has enabled us to create a data visualisation tool that basically all the data is in the background, and we've developed this interactive thing that we can put online. So you can filter by things like species or location or the fate of an animal, whether it died or was released or whether it's threatened or non-threatened, all sorts of things. And it will show you maps and charts and tables and everything that you select will affect everything on the page and all the figures. So it's a great exploratory tool and it's a way that we can give the data back to the people who gave it to us, which I think is really important for them to be able to reflect on their own rehabilitation practices and what's important to them, where they might focus educational campaigns, and not just to rehabbers, but also to the general public and anyone who might have an interest. What lights your fire about this work? My interest is in animals and wildlife. So... I just find it all fascinating and I love being able to find answers to things that nobody's ever had answers to before and particularly answers that are going to be really useful to people. Like when you can start to see trends over time in what's happening with particular species based on information that no one's ever had before, it's it's really quite exciting. And you're also a carer yourself, right? You're a zoologist and you've been a carer. Qualified as a zoologist and I have been, yeah, licensed rescuer before. You know what it's like, in other words. Yeah. You know what the 24-hour care is like, that one-by-one yeah. yeah. one animal, one animal at a time.
0: Mm. Yeah.
3: It's hard work. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah our rehabers our volunteers are so valuable in the work that they do and they put in so much effort and we do recognise that and we want them to be recognised and part of us getting the data out there is trying to give them that recognition and show everybody else what amazing work they're doing. so... You've got a
0: dashboard and very shortly, if not already, by the time this goes to air, you're going to make it public.
3: Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully it shouldn't be too far off.
0: And then that means the carers will be able to get at it themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, you've aggregated this data. Why is that important to aggregate it?
1: The simple reason is we can tell a statewide story. And in fact, when we started this work... It's true to say there was a view among many that there wasn't a great value to wildlife rehabilitation from a conservation perspective. When we spoke to the groups themselves, they didn't really have a sense of their relative contribution to the undertaking of wildlife rehabilitation. We wanted to tell this story and demonstrate the scale of the undertaking and all that could be achieved. So aggregation really enables us to tell a whole story to the state government, to the business community, to the wider community about what is happening, where, when, and hopefully we can look at it and understand what we can do to stop some of these things happening that bring these animals into care.
0: I guess the point is that, you know, it seems like wildlife care is sometimes seen as these kind of peculiar people who don't like humans, who just want to, you know, look after the cute little furry creatures. I wonder about within the sector whether that's how people have been thought of in a way and how critical this is to acknowledging that role?
2: Well, you know, there's the great quote from the sector, from our survey, which basically says, we're not just tree huggers. We actually make an impact to wildlife and to conservation in general. And it's been a kind of a great breakthrough for us that we can actually bring them this aggregated data and show the community the scale of work that they do. Mm. But the strength of what they do isn't just in the aggregation, it's actually in the disaggregation of the data because we've put more than half a million records into Bionet and those records, when they build up, tell a story about, you know, a species at that place at that time. So, you know, the habitat they live in, how many records, their distribution. It just tells this sort of changing trend about occupancy And researchers can take this data and look at trends over time and look at impacts to species. And that's great for threatened species because planners can make decisions about the records and the sector's contributing many records about threatened species. And then with common animals, which, you know, don't often get thought about, in five to 10 years' time, they could become threatened as well.
0: Mm, so the, rainbow lorikeets.
2: Well, rainbow lorikeets, you know, a whole range of species, wombats with mage problems, whatever, their ranges become restricted. And you can look back in time at this great plethora of records and help get a greater understanding of what's changing. And then internationally as well, we're sending records off to the International Whaling Commission about marine mammal strandings, we have four or five threatened sea turtles in New South Wales that contribute to Commonwealth recovery planning records. So it's important even in its disaggregated form.
0: So what is being revealed out of this data about release rates, for example?
1: So overall, depends on the species. I mean, not, not all species have the same rate of release. It depends what happens to them. For example, we get a lot of macropods who are in collisions with the vehicles and their success is variable overall I think we're talking about a big data set of something like you know close to half a million records somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of animals are released back into the wild and so you know we think that's understandable and pretty successful right don't have a lot of benchmarks and there's not a lot of comparative data here but that seems to be pretty consistent year in year out as I said it does vary species to species.
0: I mean, I'm surprised because I know how fragile native species are and they require a particular kind of care, as we discover when we talk to a wildlife vet later in the series. But, yeah, it surprised me how successful it was, which must be encouraging to carers themselves.
1: Look, absolutely. It is part of the incredible success story, if you like, of the sector. For example, not many people think of this as success, but giving animals that are uh, in trouble... A humane ending is an incredibly valuable service that is not well understood. So yes, release is the end game notionally, but also humane outcome as quickly as possible is also a very important undertaking.
0: What are some of the statistics that reveal the breadth of this work?
1: This is one of the surprising elements of the data set. And it goes to this issue is, is there a conservation value to wildlife rehabilitation? There was a lot of cynicism about that. I myself was warned when I took on this job almost seven years ago Watch out for this sector. They think they do great things for conservation, but we're we're not sure. As a result of our work, we can demonstrate they do. The records show that in the last five years, close to 15,500 to 16,000 threatened species have been rescued, and about 5,000 of those has been released. And each release is a golden nugget for the conservation of threatened species. So... To me, that refutes categorically that there is no value to wildlife rehabilitation, even if you just look at threatened species. I think a large number of koalas, for example, have been brought in uh, to care in the last five years, particularly in the last 12 months. And we're sh- seeing that there's a really good response from this sector. They treat them well. Where they can, they save them. And where they can, they release them. That's invaluable contribution to conservation. Mm.
0: This is really key because I think that represents a shift in the way we think and therefore the way we make policy, surely.
1: Absolutely. And I'd like to say that as a result of starting this work and beginning to have this kind of evidence-based discussion, we're able to insert consideration of wildlife rehabilitation and a whole lot of conservation planning and strategy making from the government. People are listening, people are responding, and people are therefore now inviting wildlife rehabilitation groups in the whole sector to the table when we talk about conservation response and planning. The bushfire emergency response is classic. You know, there's a lot of interest and emphasis now on making sure that wildlife rehabilitation sector is equipped, supported and prepared in future bushfire emergencies. And I've got no doubt that part of the reason that's happening is there's an increasing understanding of the value of this sector and what it can actually achieve and that data is helping to Mm -hmm. tell that story.
0: So the data is helping to tell the story but I wonder if what about for carers? If they have this information to hand then they can tell their own story too.
1: Absolutely. Cultivating this storytelling at a range of scales, local, state, national, international, super important. So The whole world understands what's happening in this amazing place we call Australia, amazing place we have in New South Wales, and all the wonderful natural values we're trying to conserve. It's really important that groups tell their own story, their own way, and having this data enables them to do that.
0: Mm. It's an empowering thing. Ron?
1: Yeah, well, one thing that gets overlooked with
2: volunteers is they take more than 180,000 calls a year from the community about wildlife, not just rescues, about animals that people are interacting with every day. So they give a lot of important advice. So they have a public education role and actually they've got a prevention role as well. So they don't just necessarily rescue animals at the end of the process. They can contribute to changing people's behaviours through preventing negative interactions with wildlife. So when they get hold of this data, not just for their own group, but from, you know, a local government perspective, they can actually tell a greater narrative and they can give a a fuller picture about the impacts of certain behaviours we have in the community, you know, dogger cats, cat attacks, motor vehicle collisions. And they can maybe affect and lobby change because they do that as well with their local councils.
0: So was that statistic about the numbers of phone calls revealed in your data?
2: Yeah, yeah, so about 180,000 calls a year. I think our enviro line gets less than half of that. So that's quite a significant amount of calls.
0: What else have you got in the way of stats that you might not have known before?
2: Well, so Peter mentioned threatened species. There's been 147 different threatened species rescued over the last six years, which is actually really interesting and amazing. 15 of those are critically endangered, such as the region honey eater and Beechstone curlew, 26 endangered, and there's even some on the international IUCN Red List, which are mostly marine, marine turtles, marine mammals. Those 147 species, there's 21,000 threatened animals. So, yeah, it's kind of very revealing.
0: So I was really interested in what some of the things are that bring our animals into the situation where they have to be rescued in the first place. I mean, you've got car collisions, but you've got a bunch of other things as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's fair to say that for a large number of records, we don't know. So people just don't know. Groups just get a call, cold call, come and get the thing, don't really know what's happened. So we're working on that. You know, We need to better understand the unknown bits. But collision, yeah, is, is one of the, the biggest ones. You know, habitat loss.
0: Unsuitable environment, Unsuitable
1: I think. environment, yeah, that's right. So
0: finding something where it shouldn't be.
1: Exactly, you know, the kangaroo in the car park. You Post, know.
3: Possum,
0: down
1: um, the yeah. Yeah, possum down the, down the chimney. Yeah, possum down the chimney. The brown <laughs> snake under the fridge. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I mean, what, what you see is, yeah, you do have these descriptions of the animals in the wrong place. The fact is a lot of this happens in the urban interface and in peri-urban interface. So animals are coming into contact with where people live and move. And that's what brings these animals in to strife is where you have those interactions that are heightened, you'll see more and more animals come into care. You can look at our maps from our data and it's kind of clear, you know, where there's a high density of population and movement of traffic, you can see that's like an overarching picture. Now that we really understand the nuance of that, it needs other data sets, other people to come in with their data sets, for example, maps of land use change or, or climate change or vehicle movement or peri-urban growth, whatever you, you have, to intersect with our data set and make more sense of what's happening. And that can help people like planners and conservation strategists to get better results overall for both the animals and the humans.
2: Just with the causes, that spreadsheet we spoke about to start with, there's about 48 different causes. They're broken up into categories like collisions and entanglements and disease. And that's one of the big new things about the spreadsheet is that people where they can can list the cause. It's the direct cause. It may not be the complete underlying cause, but it's the direct cause. And motor vehicle collisions when you take the unknowns out, which is more than half the records, is probably the biggest one. So it accounts for 24% of all the records when you take the unknowns out. And mammals as a class account for of those motor vehicle collisions. So that's really high. And when we spoke about FATES earlier, you can just imagine that those large kangaroos, wombats that come into contact with motor vehicles on a road, they're not going to have a 30% release rate. It's actually less than 20%. So there's not a lot of success with big traumatic injuries like that.
0: So what does that mean then, once you've got that data, what do you do with that? If motor vehicles are responsible for so many collisions, we can reduce that, can't we?
1: Yeah, we can. The approach we take with this data set is our responsibility is to make sure we have a quality assured data set that has longevity and has utility. We can't do all that analysis about how different arms of government or community respond to it. But we are doing our bit in providing the foundation for further inquiry, as I've said, you know, further data sets, other people who have these accountabilities are now able to use this data. For example, just last week we had a discussion with our koala conservation groups about how we can use our data to understand koala hotspots for roadkill. They will go away and do that work, but they'll use our data as one stream of evidence to help them do that. And increasingly, we hope that this data set will be picked up by people and applied the same way. You can learn from this stuff. You can look at where, which species, you know, when, what time, what season, and then you can come up with traffic management protocols or community education campaigns to say, okay, it's winter, we're getting more macropods on the road because they're coming to find grass, slow down, be extra cautious, particularly up here in wherever, you know, Griffith, Broken Hill, whatever it is, this is the season and increasingly we can educate everybody in the community.
3: Yeah, I think it's testament to the value of the data that we haven't even released the online data tool yet, but we've already had several meetings with various people who are interested in in using it um, whether it be local councils or RSPCA because they're interested in how they can use that to help set their priorities and make their management decisions and so yeah once it goes online possibilities are endless.
0: (laughs) So Vanessa how can carers go about using this
3: data themselves when that tool comes online what can they do? So it's kind of fun just to play around with this tool, really. There's so many different things you can explore, different combinations of things. If you have an interest in a particular species, you might select that species and see how the number of records, the number of rescues that are happening of that species are changing over several years. You can look at seasonal trends. You can look at what the reasons that species has come into care. But if you're interested in more broadly multiple species, you can look at, say, the top five species that have been impacted by dog attacks or whatever it might be. There's a map as well. So if you filter for anything in particular, it will show the map of New South Wales broken up by local government areas and the darker the colour of the local government area, the more rescues yet were in that area based on your filters. So you could actually use that to find expertise as well.
0: You could say, OK, I've got a creature here that we don't often come across in our group, but where are the people who handle this creature regularly? And you could use that as a
3: way to reach out to others. So, yeah, you could use that map to filter for species. It will show you where the hotspots for rescues are for that species. And, yeah, then you could find out what the licensed rescue groups are in that area and touch base with them and say, hey, have you got any tips for us?
1: (laughs) I think that's a really good point, is that it enables groups to look across the whole state to see who else is doing the same species and do they have the same challenges? That's really what we want in this sector. We want groups to understand each other as well as to be understood by others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means sharing expertise, sharing information. And a lot of them don't know that until they see this type of aggregated data set again. You, know? mm-hmm. you can actually see the whole picture. And there is a tendency, I guess, for people to think, I'm all alone doing this activity. In actual fact, when you look at the data, There might be someone right next to you, a little bit further away from you, who also has the same challenges, and maybe you can talk and and get that support.
0: So it's a way to make communities more porous, isn't it, and more interactive?
1: Absolutely, I think that's really well said. It is about helping to build cohesion through common storytelling. You know, sharing those lived experience, the lived experience of wildlife rehabilitation. We know, you know, it's an arduous task. It requires lots of people. It's an incredible commitment that's not really well understood by most of the community, and. I think it's really important to start to tell that story. I'm in absolute awe of the people I've met and what they do, and it needs to be understood by many, many more people other than me.
3: I think we all want to encourage more people to sign up for wildlife care and and become a volunteer. They certainly need the help, but, yeah, it's a good point. It's not for everyone. It's hard, it's emotionally taxing. If you're someone who loves animals, that's great, but you also need to be able to let them go and... Sometimes that's through a a good ending and a release and sometimes it's through a not-so-good ending and it's hard stuff to deal with. I wonder if the data reflects any of that.
1: Look, I think it is a tangent, is that you just have to look at the stats to see what does not survive, what needs to be euthanised or just dies, and you have a sense of the enormity of death in this sector over five years plus. And there's a human interface here that bears that emotional burden, as Vanessa said. That's real. The numbers show that. What it doesn't show is, I guess, the intense situation where you rock up to an emergency event and there's an animal that's in a mess on the road, still alive, and you have to deal with that. There's lots of concern about first responders in our community these days, particularly on the back of the bushfire emergency. Many of our wildlife rescuers are first responders. They have that same intense experience. The data shows there's a huge amount of that. There's is eighty to 100,000 rescues a year. Someone's going out and picking up an animal. A lot of those animals are smashed to bits. That's emotionally hard to deal with, yet people do. And then you try to keep that animal alive and return it to the wild, and despite your best efforts, you might fail. And sometimes that failure takes months before it's revealed. That's hard.
0: And, yes, again, if that is you, check out our first series because there's some really good and deep advice there. We don't just skate over the surface.
2: Hmm. I mean, the other side to the picture is the vets. They're often forgotten, vets and vet nurses. They play a really important role in that triage and initial assessment and treatment role. And they intersect directly with the volunteer sector on a daily basis out in little country towns and things. And they often get forgotten. But we've recently done some study and published some results on the work that they do, and by collating a lot of the data, we can get a clearer understanding on training needs for vets as well. Taronga zoos in collaboration with our department, has done a terrific job getting some professional development training with more than 150 vets trained in the last six months. Because
0: in- it is a very specialist type of care, and we also have an episode in this series talking about exactly how specialist it is.
2: Well, just look at, as we mentioned, the diversity of animals that are coming into care. I mean, you know, 450 different species every year and 600-something overall. That can be very challenging for a vet who doesn't often get these animals Mm -hmm. coming into the shop to care for.
0: Speaking of vets and how you approach specific species, Australian species, and I, I, I get your point that the data will be taken and applied by others. But I wonder how this data might potentially change the way we approach caring for specific species. And in future episodes, we're going to talk about three significant species, koalas, flying foxes, and raptors. So I wonder how this data will influence rehabilitation in terms of practice of conservation
1: and care. Look, I think it has the potential to do that simply by looking at the data for each of those nominated species, for example, we can see how many species are coming in, why they're coming in, what brings them in. So, for example, with koalas, dog attack, motor vehicle collision is already understood, loss of habitat, already understood to be kind of like the three critical areas that compromise the continued success of koalas in the wild. So this data helps to validate that. What our data does is give more detail, more nuance to where and when. And so that can also inform conservation campaigns. So residences that have uncontrolled dogs, those local councils, together with other conservation partners, could be able to run an education campaign to say, "Okay, this is a critical area, critical time, keep your dog on a leash because we have precious koalas here. That's one way. We also learn about for example, if a species is coming in because of disease, just being attuned to the fact there's a disease out there might require further inquiries from our animal disease specialists about what treatments are possible or what quarantine might be required. For example, if you have rainbow lorikeets suffering from beak and feather disease, what kind of quarantine and hygiene protocols do you need around that? Hygiene for diseased animals is really super important, so we don't have super spreader events that go in, you know, maybe cross-species boundaries as well. You know, we're living in a pandemic. We understand that, you know, the danger of all these things. So this data starts to have a more pointed inquiry about those things. Well, the disease is a good one because
2: those rehabilitators, they're the interface for animals needing rescue for disease and they might see one or two records, but over two years, three years, four years, when these clusters start to build up... It's
1: only them that are really telling us about how disease outbreaks are extending. Yeah, so on that point, it's a really great point, Ron. Wildlife rehabilitators, our early warning system when it comes to wildlife disease, yet untapped, I believe, but our data starts to reveal that.
0: We're almost coming to a close here, but I want to come back before we do to that idea of the unsuitable environment. We have an idea of what that is now, but I wonder what it might reveal over time about the impacts of a changing climate, a climate in crisis.
1: Look, the data, again, it is a foundational base for further inquiry. So absolutely, what will it reveal? That requires the application of scientific analysis to have confidence to say what it will reveal, but we can speculate. I think we can speculate with some impunity because we know what's happening in the world and we know that habitat is changing and we know that, you know, communities need to grow and prosper and they are challenges for any civilization, any population. Understanding the urban flow of things and the give and take is really important. It's undoubtedly the case that we need to have a better understanding of how we can live in harmony with, with the natural world. And so in finding ways to mitigate those impacts... An early warning system of what's going to change should help us achieve good conservation efforts to help protect species. Can we save all species in a climate change scenario? We don't know. No-one knows. We can only try. And there's lots of effort across the world and in New South Wales about, you know, trying to hold on to this precious species, those which are more likely to drop off more quickly, the threatened ones, lots of endeavour. And we can only try and use the best data available to understand what we can do that's sensible to adapt our own behaviour and our own lifestyles to keep these species on the planet as long as we possibly can.
3: One of the things that I'd just like to promote to all the researchers out there is that we are also planning on putting the most of the Data set that we can on what's called the Seed Data Portal. So, this is an online repository of environmental data from all sorts of different sources, and we plan to put this data set on there fairly soon. And that will be a great place for researchers to go to combine that data with information about climates and weather patterns and whatever else they might want to combine it with. But I think that's where we can start getting some of the answers to the question you asked, is by yeah getting the researchers in there to bring it all together and find out what it does tell us.
2: We don't ask the volunteers, whether it was habitat loss or climate change that's brought okay. that animal into care. It's generally the more direct reasons. But it's interesting, they just it just builds up a picture that it may have been injured by a dog or cat, but that's because there's more increased residential development that's encroaching on habitat. It's reducing optimal food trees for animals, which is giving that animal greater underlying stress to populations. Which could be increasing koalas' prevalence of chlamydia in populations, and recent studies in southeast Queensland have postulated just that: that increased change to habitat and habitat loss is resulting in more stress, which is resulting in greater incidence of chlamydia in koalas.
1: I might just add there too: and we focus a lot on terrestrial species, but the marine species are also affected by changing climate, and so you were likely to see that in our data too: more incidence of, for example turtles coming into care for a range of reasons. So that again, our data is a point of continued inquiry. We're providing the base quality assured, which enables other people to do the more detailed analysis.
0: Vanessa, I'd like to finish with you. Where will listeners be able to go and find this data and more information? And how can they interact with you afterwards?
3: So when the the tool comes online it will be on uh, one of our web pages on the at environment.nsw.gov.au On the dashboard, there's a help page, which will have um, some extra contact points on there to email our our team if there's any unanswered questions. But also that seed data portal is a good place to go to get a full data set. And Bionet also has a subset of the data as well.
0: And you mentioned to me the other day that, You actually really do want to hear from carers. You see this as a
3: collaboration and what you're doing is giving back. We want to work with carers to move forward in this area because they're the ones doing all the work and they they have that knowledge. So although we're putting out these tools and we're putting out this data, we're more than open to feedback. If they use the tool and they see that it could be more useful to them if it had this or that, by all means contact us and we'll see what we can do because we want it to be useful for people and we want it to be used. Mm. So I guess it's just that the, the volunteers have gone to so much effort in providing this data to us and, yeah, we just really want to give that back to them because they haven't had it given back to them before and and I think they'll find it really interesting and hopefully really encouraging to just show them how much good work they've done. Have a look at all those releases and how it all really does add up, how much good they all do. One animal at a time. Mm
0: -hmm. Vanessa Wilson, Peter Stathis and Ron Herring on Wildlife Heroes, One Animal at a Time. Brought to you by the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife and supported by the New South Wales Government through its Environmental Trust. There are relevant links on our website, including to the data dashboard we've been discussing, where you can have a play and see the full picture of care for your favourite species. And please do check out our other episodes where we go out into the field to paint the data picture on the ground with the people and the animals in the rehabilitation sector, including a day at a wildlife vet and three lovely episodes on bats, raptors and koalas, in which we consider the critical role of that work in conservation. And don't forget our first series is all about the mental health of wildlife carers. We really look closely at the issues. It's a good one. Have a listen. I'm Gretchen Miller. Bye for now.